Gracious Lord, as we look at this amazing story, uh, this very real story of a man who you spoke to and why you spoke to him, I pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us and that we would learn something useful for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So it's no coincidence that immediately after the Tower of Babel, which we talked about last week, Tower of Babel, which is just a story of humanity deciding they're going to do the sacred thing, the religious thing, in their own way, which, as we know, was doomed to failure. It's no coincidence that immediately after that, God starts his own process of repairing that enormous rift between him and humanity. Consider... This idea, we, we think about what did we lose when we came out of the Garden of Eden. What did God lose? He had his creation, he was able to commune with them and he lost that. And we know that he wants to get it back. He wants to dwell amongst his people and, and we're heading towards the new Jerusalem. But he's got to find a way to get past the rebellion of humankind. And so he's looking for a person, he's looking for a person a person who put his faith in God, a person who is willing to listen to God, a person willing to follow instructions, because God knows that humanity can't find its way back to him unaided. He knows it's just beyond their capacity to work it out. Especially as the key thing about getting back to God is you actually have to be listening to him. And so in comes Abraham. Abram, at the early stage of this life, God changes his name later on as he evolves. But Abram enters the story as the man that God has chosen to be the way back, the way to reconciliation between God and all humanity. So who is he? Well, has to be one of three sons of Noah, descendants, doesn't he? Because everyone else got eliminated by the flood. And to prove that this story we're going to look at is not just an exaggerating story, because if you think about it, you know all those ancient myths and legends? What have they done? They've exaggerated the feats of their ancients, haven't they? They just exaggerate. But here we haven't. We've got a very real thing. They've gone to ancientancestry.com and they've laid out very clearly that Abraham is a descendant of Shem, and that's what we call the Semitic people these days. So if you've got your good eyesight on, you can see that middle strand goes down through Shem all the way down to Abraham. So he's a direct descendant of Shem. But of course, <coughs> because we know the end of the story, that the way for mankind to be reconciled with God, the way to get past our sinful rebellion is through faith in Jesus, Let's look at a bigger picture, uh, a big picture summary showing how Jesus, Jesus is directly descended from Abraham. So you've got Adam down through many generations to Noah, Noah many generations to Abraham, and under him there's Isaac and Jacob and Israel and Judah, many generations down to King David, one of the brands, We've got Solomon here, down through Jacob, Joseph, father of Jesus, and Mary comes down from David through Nathan's line. So Abraham, Jesus, direct descendants. 
And so that gives us a sense of the importance of Abraham. Not just for the Israelis, but for all of humanity. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And so he's a big deal. And the promises made to Abraham have led to the creation of the church, the worldwide church. Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus is really a fruit of the faith and obedience of Abraham way back. And so if you want to just check that out in your own scriptures here, we're going to look quickly at Genesis 11 verse 27 onwards and see what's written down. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor were both married and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, Haran the, the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they got on the Makkah train. No, they didn't. Together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. And when they got to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So let's just say this happened. That was Abraham's pedigree. So now we think, well, what's his story? And his story is, starts with this very direct encounter with God where Abraham very clearly hears God speak to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. Go from your country. For your people and your father's household to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and, and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you well I'm sure we'd all like to hear something like that wouldn't we nice message like that for us and, and our family but would we, on the strength of hearing something like that, having a religious experience, would we do what Abraham did? Because Abraham put his belief into practice, into action. He followed through on his beliefs, as we see in verse 4 of Genesis 12. So Abraham went. Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And he took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. And Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so what did he do? He responded in faith. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And I've got a little bit of a map so you can see where he went from. Quite a long journey from Ur down here in Mesopotamia up through Babylon. Firstly, they went up to Haran and then all the way back around down there. And obviously you go that way because it's all desert and mountain in between. And you 
you can't get through. Big journey on the strength of God speaking to him. So for Christians, our father Abraham is a towering ancestor and the utmost respect is given to him. I found interesting to discover that the, well, realise that the descendants of Abraham, from Abraham comes Judaism, that's the Jews, yeah, we, they believe in him, Islam, the Baha'i faith, the Druze, Samaritanism and Rastafarianism all have Abraham as being of the greatest respect. Interesting, it's not just for us. But for us, the pointy edge of the promise that God made to Abraham is nevertheless found through that descendant, Jesus. You don't find salvation in any of the other ways, any other places that hold Abraham in great respect. Because the fulfilment of the promise God made to Abraham is in the coming of Jesus. And so he's a superstar for us. But interestingly and wonderfully, this superstar is just an everyman. Think about the ancient Greek legends and stuff. They've got these, the heroes are off performing these legendary feats of strength and bravery and prowess. Abraham is just so very normal as we are normal. He didn't hold any office that we know of. He wasn't a king or the president. He didn't perform any miracles. The trials he faced were any trials that we could have faced. He was in trouble in business. The water, the grass and grazing rights on which he depended were often withheld from him. He never drove a hard bargain, not even with the king of Sodom or generous Ephron the Hittite, who would have given him a burial cave for nothing. And he, he yielded to Lot's greedy cattlemen. And he said, okay, you have it, I'll just go this way. His concern for just general well-being of everyone led him to plant trees and dig wells wherever he wandered in the drought-ridden land without any expectation that he would get anything much out of it, just so that the next generation would be better off. And at Hebron, he ran a school for outcasts where he received all com comers. And in fact, it was so well known that they had a proverb in the time which was, charity was dead, and Abraham revived it. Charity was dead and Abraham revived it. Interesting. And you know, we, we love a bit of vengeance, don't we? We like to see the bad guys get what's coming to them when we watch a movie. But not Abraham. He even pleaded for the bad guys in Sodom and Gomorrah. Feeling compassion even for those who obviously were doing the wrong thing. But his greatest quality as we know, that single-minded devotion to the one true and living God. And that's something we all can do. Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness to him. Our faith can be credited as righteousness for us. And we know that Abraham's devotion to God wasn't perfect, and neither will ours be. But he still always kept coming back. But most important for the, what we see in the Bible, which is a story about the history of salvation, how God works through many steps to get to the way we get saved these days, 
most important for the biblical history of salvation was the covenant that God made with his chosen servant Abram. And, and so what's a covenant? It's, it's a binding agreement which two parties make with one another. And we need to know a little bit about history to inform us of how did they do that in that day? How did they make covenants in those days? And they were what we would call today binding legal documents. So there's a, a guy who's done a lot of research. He comes from the University of Michigan. His name is George Mendenhall. And he studied the law and the covenant in the ancient Near East. And using archaeological evidence, they found things called suzerain treaties. That's suzerain treaties, that's between kings and their, their vassals, their, their servants. And there's a format in those treaties. You've got a prologue, and a bit of a preamble, and then you have the stipulations and the sanctions of your covenant. And, and we see that same sort of thing in a biblical covenant where you've got the sovereign one, the suzerain, and he introduces the terms of that treaty by first giving a bit of a preamble in which he identifies himself. And how many times have you seen in the Old Testament this phrase, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Or I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Or what's that preamble in Genesis 15:7 for Abram, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So that's the prologue, that's the start of that. And then Abram gets told this. And what's he do next? We see a sort of fragility as well as strength of faith immediately after that prologue. And I think that reminds us of ourselves. And he says in Genesis 15, 8, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know I will gain possession of it? You know that story in Mark 9 of the demon-possessed boy who's brought to Jesus by his father? And so he asks Jesus, he says, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that so human? I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And, and so Abram's thinking like, oh, I've, I've followed your word, I've left my family, I've gone all the way to another country, I, I kept on trusting you. And now you tell me I'm going to have all this children and I'm going to have all this land. I believe you, Lord, but just help my unbelief a little bit. How can I know for sure? I wonder if you've ever been there. Have you ever been in that same situation? Do you think do you think you might get there if your family and your freedom and your possessions and your health were taken from you? If you were thrown in prison, maybe, for some reason, possibly. The modern one is modern one of the modern fears is that you might be thrown in for being refused to, to be vaccinated. And you think Joseph might have asked that question as well, after he was being shown in the vision that all well, his family would be would bow down before him and then he gets sold off as a slave. 
and then he gets thrown into prison. Would he have been saying, Lord, I'm trying to trust you, but how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? How can faith move to a full assurance and a certainty? And that's Abraham's question at this point. And so, how did God answer? He answered it by starting off a covenant ceremony. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. And then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. But Abram drove them away. And so Abram's got these bodies arranged like in a path, like a gauntlet you pass down the middle of. And we see in verse 12 there, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And that word dreadful in that phrase, dreadful darkness, has got a, it's got an element of horror in it. Some saints talk about having experienced the dark night of the soul, which is like a seemingly bottomless pit or an abyss of darkness which brings horror to you. And if you go through scripture, you'll find that people have virtually that same response when God comes near. They're always terrified. They're terrified. And so here it is, a night vision. Abraham firstly experiencing that dreadful darkness and terror of God beginning to draw near. And then God speaks to him about a way of being sure, about a way to know for certain and he starts that off he said no the Lord said to him no for certain no for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they'll be enslaved and they'll be mistreated there but I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they come out with great possessions you however you'll go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age and in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And then there's a really simple but an amazing verse in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. No human carrying this firepot or this oven, this blazing torch. Now, modern cinematography can produce this on the silver screen, but it's got people in green suits carrying things. But here is not fiction. Here is the actual presence of the Lord in operation going down between those, those animal parts. It's what we call a theophany, which is just an outward, visible manifestation of the invisible God. And just to mention a couple of the other ones in the scriptures, there's the burning bush for Moses. There's the pillar of cloud and smoke for the Israelites in the wilderness. And I don't know about you, but God appearing visibly like this would certainly help me know for certain. 
wouldn't it? You know, there are a couple of things God can't do. You're like, oh, I can do everything. What can't he do? He can't die. And he can't lie. And because he can't lie, you can trust this covenant he made with Abraham. And verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To you and your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, in the land of all those ites, the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, you get the point. Here's a map. The land promised to Abram incorporated much more than that small sliver of land that we today call Israel. It includes all of Jordan, all of Lebanon, and most of Syria. Now they haven't got it yet, have they? But it's on the way. But it's very important to note from this account another very important aspect of this covenant and that's its unilateral nature. Unilateral, <coughs> that uh, means the agreements between two parties but only one of the parties has the responsibility to act. In the case of the agreement between God and Abraham, God was the only one who was required to act. And that's what makes it unilateral. And we know that covenant was unilateral because in the ancient world, from what we've seen here, the, the, the process was you cut open your animals, you put them on two sides, made a gauntlet, and then both of you walked down the middle. But in the covenant God made with Abraham, it was only God. It took on the form of a smoking furnace and a flazing, flaming torch. It was only God going down the middle. And indeed, God caused Abraham to fall asleep while this took place, further assuring that the full weight of the responsibility of the covenant was to fall on God rather than on Abraham. And I don't know about you, but I find that tremendously encouraging because I find it impossible to live the pure and holy life which I desire to live, and no matter how hard I try, it's been impossible so far in my life, and there's no reasonable explanation, expectation that it'll ever change. And so I find it very encouraging that even this exalted and so much better than me ancestor in the faith, Abraham, even he was not required to do anything to maintain the covenant. The fulfilment of the covenant did not depend in any way on what Abraham did because God would be the power and God would be the maintainer and the fulfiller of the promise. And when we trust like Abram did and seek to act out on our faith, we can have exactly the same assurance that Abraham had. We can know for certain because it doesn't depend on the quality and the quantity of our faith. It all depends upon the Lord, God who cannot lie, will save anyone who says yes to him, who says yes to Jesus and turns to go his way. And so we'll just sum up what was the content of the, of the covenant. Well, there's three things that happened in this covenant. First, they were promised land. You know, God 
when God called Abram, he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God told him, move to another land that he would show him, and that land turned out to be Canaan, and it would be several more generations and before they uh, took possession of it, but land. Second promise, descendants. Lots and lots of them, as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky, and they would bless the whole earth. And interesting, I saw some stats about the number of Nobel Prize winners who are Jewish in comparison to their population and the number that they've got is just astoundingly. They're batting out of their leagues, so they're blessing the whole earth. And God told Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation with mighty kings. And the third was the promise that God would bring blessing and redemption to all people through Abraham's people, his descendants. And he repeated that promise to Isaac and he repeated that promise to Jacob. And yet, and despite the fact that these guys were not perfect, God's unconditional promise stands. Since he was the only participant in the covenant, there's no way for humans to mess that one up. It's an everlasting covenant and in time it's going to become the future kingdom of Christ. A little bit of a sidebar, we're wondering a bit about Israel because we saw that land, they weren't all there yet. But Ezekiel prophesied a day when they would be fully restored to the promised land, blessed and redeemed. And we'll just look at Romans just to see what how Paul puts that together in Romans 11, verse 25 to 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So it's in part because there's always a remnant. And in this way, how much of Israel will be saved? All. All Israel will be saved as it was written. The deliverer will come from Zion and will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. And so God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that you too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. There's quite a lot in there, but the main point I was getting to was Israel is coming back and, and will be restored the important thing for us is John 3, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And, and that's Abram's core example of how to do that for us. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And that's the other story of Abraham. It's the love of God finding a way to restore fellowship, to get us back. And so what can we conclude? We can say that God's call to Abraham is for all of us. God's call to Abram is for all of us.
Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. You see, in order to believe in Jesus, some of us will have to leave the familiar. Some of us will have to leave the comfortable. We'll have to leave the known. Because God calls us to a better destination, to a better family, to a better eternal destination. And he calls us to join his family, the eternal family of God, simply by doing what Abraham did. He believed God and he moved. Let's pray. Our father Abraham, we see that indeed he's our spiritual father. And Lord, you spoke and said, move. And as we're pausing here this morning, it may be for some of us there's a sense of a call somewhere. God might be saying, okay, it's time to move out. And I pray that you would make very clear to whoever that is. Make your voice very clear so they may know for certain. And you call us always to continually examine whether the way we are moving is in the direction of the kingdom of God or in the direction of our own comfort. And so guide us in our steps forward, I pray, and we, we thank you for our ancestor, Ab Abraham, and we praise you for finding a way through him for us to spend eternity with you in the new Jerusalem when you will come and dwell amongst us again and walk amongst us as you did in the Garden of Eden. What a wonderful and a blessed hope that you have established for us, Lord. Praise your holy name.